From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The president remains hospitalized with COVID-19. Meanwhile, Colorado's seen an uptick in hospitalizations. We'll talk to a frontline physician here. Then, there will be a measure on your ballot this election that you might sum up as not so fast, because it could undo something the legislature did, which was to join Colorado to a national popular vote compact. This has to do with how the president is elected. We'll debate Prop 113, which stirs up a lot of different feelings about the Constitution, about fairness, even racial justice. Plus, this is Mother Cabrini Day in Colorado. We'll visit her shrine. There are just so many issues out there today that I think the shrine is a place to get away from all of that. I'm Anne-Marie Awad, host of the CPR News podcast On Something. And on October 15th, our podcast is hosting its first ever live virtual event. Join me and Denver's own Andrew Orvidal for an evening of stories about those awkward moments where cannabis and family overlap. We'll laugh, we'll cringe, and we'll all learn something together. Sponsored in part by the Rodman Law Group. Register at onsomething.org slash myfamily. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It's not clear yet how the nation will weather COVID-19 this winter. For now, the president remains hospitalized with the virus. And here in Colorado, hospitalizations have been going up and lots of 20-somethings are testing positive. We're going to get some perspective this morning from the chief medical officer at Denver Health, Dr. Connie Price. She is an infectious disease specialist. Dr. Price, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. We don't want you to speculate on the president's case, but I do want to ask you about a drug he apparently received, one I hadn't heard associated with the pandemic until this weekend, and that's dexamethasone, a steroid to treat inflammation. Has that drug played a part in treatment at Denver Health? Yes, absolutely. It is uh, the only drug to date that has shown any mortality benefit in certain populations um, who uh, come in presenting with COVID. And what is it doing exactly uh, in terms of inflammation? Is this lung inflammation? Yeah, so it's it's an old drug. It is used uh for a lot of inflammatory conditions to quiet the immune system. And we know that in COVID-19, a lot of the problems patients experience are due to the immune response to the virus. So this quiets that. All right. Systemically, I guess. And is it used in, again, not speculating on the president's case, but at Denver Health, is it used in mild cases, moderate cases, severe cases? It's used in anyone who requires hospitalization and has an oxygen requirement. So if they're if they have low oxygen levels, we will routinely give it. Yes. All right. Here in Colorado, as I mentioned, there's been a rise in cases among 18 to 25 year olds um, and hospitalizations, as we have said uh, in uh, elsewhere on CPR News, are at their highest since August. Uh, is is that a trend you're seeing firsthand? Yes, our hospitalizations have been going up. Uh, it lags from what we see from the initial spikes that we were seeing in the community, and now we're starting to see that impact on hospitals. 
but nothing near what we had in the first wave. Okay, that's important context. What factors do you think are contributing to this uptick? Well, I, I correlate with, you know, it could be the Labor Day weekend, but it could also be uh, kids and uh, college-age students going back to school and interacting more. And even if that group doesn't get hospitalized, their interaction with the community and potentially with at-risk people who do get hospitalized, then I think that is what we're seeing. I think if if this pandemic has taught me one thing, Dr. Price, it's just how connected we are. Something that happens in, in a community that I may not have daily association with winds up impacting my life. Would you say that's true? Oh, yes, absolutely. We are very connected. And all throughout the world, infectious diseases don't obey borders. With colder weather coming, people presumably will be inside more. How concerned are you about the winter and COVID-19? Well, we know from other respiratory viruses that they do tend to propagate more in the winter because of that issue. We're inside more, um, and it really, the risk depends a lot on, you know, what kind of environment you're inside, how many people, how good the ventilation is. So it's hard to say exactly what it means, but certainly we know we should be prepared for more spread of respiratory viruses and potentially including COVID-19. And the flu, potentially as well. And the flu, absolutely. Does the notion of a twindemic give you pause? Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, Twindemic, uh, you know, with the idea being that we'll see both uh, a bad influenza season and COVID-19 circulating at the same time, I think that is possible. And it's one of the reasons we're really urging people to get their flu vaccine this year, Try do everything we can to take that out of the equation. I wonder if I might ask about your own behavior this winter, Dr. Price, in terms of spending time inside, let's say, with friends, socially distanced, with masks on. Is that something you do? Is there an indoor environment, uh, I suppose, besides work, that is well ventilated enough to make you feel comfortable with something like that? Yeah, I, you know, I think we have to buckle down and just hold out a little bit longer. Um, it won't be something I will be doing um, to the extent I can. Uh, I'm still gathering outside with small groups when, you know, appropriately socially distanced. But as we go indoors, uh, it is just hard to sit inside with masks on for any length of time. and. And uh, I think it takes the enjoyment in some ways out of that gathering as well. Um, And it's not risk-free. So I think for everyone, it just depends on your risk tolerance. But the safest thing to do is uh, limit that interaction um, and uh, socially distance. Wear your mask when within uh, near people. Dr. Price, how much better is Denver Health, is the medical community in general, at treating COVID-19 now versus six months ago? Explain the progress. We've learned a lot, yeah. Yeah. We've learned a lot since the beginning of this. So uh, we do have a couple of drugs that have shown benefit in uh, 
COVID-19. One is remdesivir. The other is dexamethasone, which we uh, talked about early on. There may be some benefit to uh, convalescent plasma, but we're still exploring that. And then we have a lot of clinical trials with some hopeful drugs. So we have some therapies that um, that uh, are are effective and more that may be effective. We also know a little bit more about how to manage patients in the hospital. So not necessarily um, when oxygen levels get low. Um, in the past, we may have been more apt to put a breathing tube in the patient early on, but we've learned some techniques to help avoid that, which also seems to have uh, saved some lives as well. So we're much better than we were. Does that mean fewer people in general are being placed on ventilators, differently put? Uh, Yeah, uh, we're seeing lower usage of ventilators, which is really helpful in our pandemic planning um, in terms of, you know, how many ventilators will we need? Uh, It's not as many as we thought initially in the beginning of this. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Dr. Connie Price is an infectious disease specialist at Denver Health, where she's also chief medical officer. And we'll be right back to debate the popular vote measure on Colorado's ballot this election. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. To all of our supporters, thank you so much for your ongoing partnership with Colorado Public Radio. You know that a free and independent press is vital to the health of our democracy. Even during challenging times, CPR is dedicated to covering stories and issues with the depth, diversity, and thoughtfulness that you have come to depend on. However you choose to support CPR in the days and months ahead, please know that you are truly appreciated. You make it possible. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It had not happened in more than a century. Then it occurred twice, pretty close together. I'm talking about the president being elected while losing the popular vote. So an electoral college win only. This issue is on your ballots this year, and if it all sounds familiar, there's a reason for that. I'll explain in a bit. In any case, we're going to debate Proposition 113 today, which has to do with the National Popular Vote Compact. Monument Mayor Don Wilson wants to withdraw from it. Mayor, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me, Ryan. And Ben Waddell, sociologist at Fort Lewis College in Durango, is voting yes on 113, affirming this. Hi, Ben. Hey, good morning, Ryan. How you doing? I appreciate you having me on the show. I'm doing well. Glad you could join us. And, you know, this ballot question is unusual because it's asking voters if they'll affirm or reject something the legislature did. And that was indeed to join the National Popular Vote Compact to prevent a repeat of the 2016 elections. Don, what are your biggest practical concerns with Colorado throwing its nine electoral votes to whomever wins the popular vote nationally? Well, this takes away from what Colorado, uh, Colorado's interests, Colorado, Colorado voters vote based on their interests in here in Colorado, whether it be water, agriculture, those are the things that are important to Coloradans. And the concept of national popular vote just tears at the fabric of our republic and kind of shifts power to the elite uh, elite states and actually dilutes each individual voter's power. When you say elite states, will you expound on what that means to you? 
Well, like our major metropolises along the the West Coast, the East Coast, and the Upper Northwest, these are highly populated areas that don't have the same interests that Colorado does, the same issues, the same concerns that Colorado does. And so if Colorado throws its nine electoral votes to the national popular vote, how would that influence water and agriculture? Those are issues that actually intertwine Colorado and California fairly closely. They do. And California has been interested in 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 rewriting the Colorado River Compact for years. Um, if if a candidate was more partial to uh, getting the massive voters of California support, he could he could make some promises that would really harm Colorado. Because you think that the uh, allegiance would be to the many more voters in California. Of course, California has many more electoral college votes than Colorado. Does doesn't that exist already? That dynamic then? Yes, it does. It does exist already to a point. Those those electoral votes are more evenly distributed through populations through the U.S. than than the elector through the electoral college those popu- those electoral votes are more evenly distributed through the states whereas in a national popular vote one state would have even more uh voter leverage than their electoral votes allow for okay so you see the electoral college as being something of a, a fairness governor in this uh, ben i'll have you respond directly to don in a moment but I'll say you're you're not a politician, you're a sociology professor, and you found yourself in the position of explaining what the Electoral College is a few times over the years. Tell me about the first time, I think it was in Nicaragua. Yeah, so I, I am a professor of sociology at Fort Lewis College. I teach uh, sociology and criminology classes, so I'm not the most likely person to be talking about the Electoral College. Um, that that said, I grew up in a very rural town in Colorado, Norwood, Colorado, a town of about 500 and grew up, um, you know, outside of town. So our closest neighbors were about an acre away. And, um, you know, it was that community fabric that, that Don's speaking about that really mattered to me most um, when I was growing up and I think most influenced me. But I did have the opportunity when I got into college to start traveling. Um, I lived in Managua, Nicaragua for for six months while I was an undergrad. Um, and that experience fundamentally changed the way I think not only about the world, but also about democracy and representative democracy in the United States. Um, ironically, I think one learns more about democracy in the United States when outside of their country than they do in the United States. Um, and so one experience that I had while I was living in Managua, I had traveled to a nearby town called Granada, and, and this was in 2004, it was the election between Kerry and Bush. Um, Bush, of course, had won his first election through the Electoral College, not through the popular vote. And he went on to win the second election pretty handily in the popular vote as well as the Electoral College. And so two different outcomes, same candidate. But I remember sitting in a in a hostel and I was was talking with a number of um, folks from different countries. One of them happened to be a Frenchman. And we were talking about the Electoral College and he asked me how it worked. And, you know, I, I remember not being able to describe well how the electoral college actually worked um and you know i was i was in my third year of college at that point and felt i understand american or understood american politics fairly well um but it, it was surprising to me that i had to look up the electoral college and really kind of understand its complexity 
Um, and then, of course, translate my head that complexity into Spanish and, and try and explain it to the Frenchman I was talking to. Yeah, um, and, and in, in trying to understand the Electoral College, you came to see it um, through the lens of equity in particular. Of course, in, in a way, that, I, that too is what we're hearing from Don Wilson, equity of yeah. urban versus rural. But how do you see uh, this through the lens of equity? Well, I think I see it through um, both the same lens as Don, as, as well as through a different lens. Um, I want to talk first to to a point that Don made, which is about the dilution of power. And you know, one of the benefits of signing or, or voting yes on Proposition One Thirteen is Coloradans would actually gain power within um, within presidential elections. So currently, if you live in Colorado and you were to move to Wyoming, Kansas, New Mexico, or Utah, your vote would gain power within the electoral college system. In fact. Coloradans vote would gain weight in 29 out of 50 states. And so that means that 29 states um, have a greater weight within the electoral college system in terms of individual votes than Colorado. So we're, you know, we, we are, we have rural areas in the state like where I grew up. Um, but, you know, for every one electoral college vote, there's 633,000 Coloradans. Uh, if you go north to Wyoming, for every one electoral college vote, there are about 177,000 people. And so there are a lot of states, the majority in the union, that have much more weight within the electoral college system than we do. And so I think in terms of equity, Colorado would have a lot to gain um, through Proposition 113 and through um, through a system in which the popular vote uh, carried more weight within the presidential election. But I want to talk about a second issue of equity. But before you do, I, actually, I, let me let yeah, me unpack that first issue, because it's it's not a small one. And I'd love to have Don respond to it. I mean, Don, states get the same number of electors they do members of Congress. So no matter a state size, they get two electoral college votes because they have two U.S. senators. Don, that's true for a giant like Texas or a far emptier state like Wyoming. Uh, doesn't that issue bake in some amount of minority rule? Uh, I'm not sure how you mean that. If if each state has two electors by senator, um Maybe I'm not understanding your question. Well, I guess what I'm saying is that the the Senate, the upper body in Congress, Mm -hmm. you have two senators no matter the population size of your state. That translates into the Electoral College. And therefore, a state that's quite populous, like a Texas or a California, is guaranteed two electoral votes. And so is Wyoming with a far smaller population. Uh, Now, throwing a vote to the national popular vote would decouple the, you know, the presidential selection from that. Um, Does that mean that some amount of minority rule is removed from the process? No, because you have your, your uh, congressional districts that the number, your number of congressional districts are based on your population. So that balances out the whole idea. Let's speak. This this is why, this is why places like Wyoming only have three votes. Yep. They don't have the population to support it, while California has 55. Reflecting this, the number in the house. Uh, let's take a quick break, and then let's pick up this debate, which is getting revved up. I, I thank you both, gentlemen. So hang on the line. We'll be back uh, with the mayor of Monument, Don Wilson, and sociology professor from Fort Lewis College, Ben Waddell, debating Prop 113 on your ballot which has to do with whether Colorado stays in the National Popular Vote Compact. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and let's return to our debate of Proposition 113 on your ballot this year. It will either affirm or deny what the Colorado legislature has done, and that is to join this state to the National Popular Vote Compact, giving Colorado's electoral votes to whomever wins the national popular vote. I'll say that this is, um, in a way, a policy in theory at the moment because you need 270 electoral college votes to win the presidency. That many states representing that many electoral votes need to join the compact before it has any real teeth. Uh, That so far has not happened. Uh, But this discussion will be pivotal to the future of the National Popular Vote Compact. My guests, sociology professor Ben Waddell of Fort Lewis College in Durango, who supports Prop 113, that is affirming what the legislature has done. And Monument Mayor Don Wilson thinks lawmakers made a bad choice here. Uh, Before the break, we were talking about the distribution of electoral votes. And Ben Waddell, I want to let you jump in after we heard from Don. Go ahead. Yeah, so I, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, representation within the House of Congress, because we, we all understand that for every two senators, there are two electoral votes for each state, right? And that does give a certain um, skew towards rural representation within the electoral college system. But there's also a rural skew within Congress in terms of the congressional seats that then um, uh, then lead to each state's um, additional electoral college votes. And so if we look at, for example, Wyoming, there is one congressional representative for about every 563,000 people. Um, If you look at a state like California, there's one um, representative in Congress for about every 754,000 people. And so that same skew exists. And the reason this exists is because those 435 seats in Congress are based on the U.S. Census of 1910 through the re- Appropriation Act of 1929. And since 1929, we have not updated the the Congress. And so every 10 years, we do a census and we redistribute those 435 seats. But the population in the United States has changed a great deal since then. 1910, that census that was used to create this allocation of 435 seats, there were 92 million Americans. Today, there are about 328 million Americans still divided between 435 seats. And so One of the propositions that I think makes a lot of sense regarding electoral college is the Wyoming rule, which is the idea that every single state for each, for the the lowest number of um, representatives in the union. So in the case of Wyoming, there's one representatives for 563,000 people. um, Every single state should have that same basic bar. So if you were to do that, it would increase representation in Congress by about 100 seats. Um, I think that's the type of thing that that we need to be looking closely at is the inequity in terms of rural representation in Congress and Senate and, and how that influences the electoral college votes. I think we need to update, in addition to the MPV, we need to update the number of representatives that each state has based on their population. You see this as um, a deeper issue. Yeah. And I want to make you I'll let you make one point before we go back to Don Wilson, Ben Waddell. You, the, the question of equity has been an important mm-hmm. one for you as you've looked at the Electoral College. Uh, talk just briefly about racial equity as you see it before we get back to Mayor Wilson. Yeah, so I mean, I've, I've made this point in um, different venues, but I think it's important to keep in mind that over the 20th century, there was a, a racial reckoning of sorts in the United States. Um, it, you know, emancipation takes place in 1865, but most African-Americans who were freed in 1865 did not have the resources or opportunity to leave the South until really 1920s. And so 
the great migration of African-Americans out of the South begins in 1920, really ends in the 60s, uh, early 70s. Um, and what you see during that time period is about six to seven million people leave the South, um, African-Americans uh, namely, but also you start to see a rural exodus of minorities across the United States, in large part because in more conservative areas of the United States during that time period, there was it was much more difficult for minorities to um, to vote, to buy homes, to to live on the side of town that they wanted to live on, um, to sit in the part of the bus that they wanted to sit in. And so what you saw was an exit of, of minorities to more progressive areas. Now, if minorities and, and white individuals voted the same in this country, um, that would be one thing, but that is not the case. Minorities tend to vote much more frequently for Democrats. And so in that exodus of minorities leaving rural America, there was a concentration of rural voices in specifically the states that have the most influence in the electoral college system. And the minorities who left rural America went towards more progressive states that happened to be shoe-ins for, um, for Democratic uh, presidential candidates. And so you get a dilution of minority voices in the electoral college system, and you get an augmentation of rural white conservative voices in the electoral college system. And so that creates um, an, an even stronger tilt towards rural America. And yep. as the country becomes more um, you know, majority minority, we're moving towards that by about 2050, uh, it, it really creates a deep inequity for minorities living in this country. So, Mayor Wilson, you have concerns about equity as well, especially from a rural perspective. And you mentioned the issues of water and agriculture. But what do you make of the concerns that Ben raises there about equity as well? Well, I think Ben makes some good points. And, you know, as far as census and the number of uh Congressional congressional districts and how that works, that is definitely something that could we could take a look at um, on the national stage. National popular vote interstate compact is not the answer to that. Um, so, so you know, I think so. I guess what I'm saying is kind of like Hamilton said: it the electoral college is not perfect but at least it's excellent in its formation. Do you, do you think um, that you'd feel differently if the more recent wins were people from a different party? Do, does any of this have to do with party for you? No, it does not. Um, you know, we've seen the, the Electoral College wasn't designed to match the, the popular vote. In fact, that's one of its features is it doesn't match the popular vote always. And, you know, especially when we start to talk about racial inequity, look what the Electoral College has done for us. Lincoln didn't win the national popular vote. Um, I, I, believe, of men, I believe he did, actually. He's not listed as one of the presidents who won with just the Electoral College. Agreed. He had... He won the 40, plurality, I believe. Right. He won the plurality. Sorry, my point being, um, the Three-Fifths Amendment kept the larger population of slave owners from having more representation in the House and Senate. Um, JFK was against having a concentration of, of basically Democrat white supremacists from the South. He didn't want that to reflect in his election, he wanted a dispersion throughout the country for 
um, to show his support, not a concentrated area of a lot of people with I, one ideology showing guys, his support. Guys, I'm going to have to wrap us up there, and I, I so appreciate your time. There's more we could explore, but you heard from Monument Mayor Don Wilson and sociology professor Ben Waddell at Fort Lewis College in Durango debating Prop 113, which has to do with the National Popular Vote Compact and Colorado's participation. Today is Francis Xavier Cabrini Day in Colorado, rare because no other state has a paid holiday that recognizes a woman. Governor Polis signed this into law in March it is observed every year on the first Monday in October in Lunau of Columbus Day. Mother Cabrini, as she was better known, is considered one of Colorado's most significant Italian-Americans. She was the first U.S. citizen canonized a saint in 1946. The Mother Cabrini Shrine is in Golden, just off I-70. With 2020 um, bringing all of the challenges that it does, whether it's the pandemic or the social unrest or politics, there are just so many issues out there today that I think the shrine is a place to get away from all of that. My name is Joanne Seaman. We are at Mother Cabrini Shrine in Golden, Colorado. I am the development director and I do fundraising and public relations, and it's just, it's a wonderful place to work. It's really special in that there aren't other places like this in the entire state of Colorado. It's just a very peaceful, quiet, holy place for people to come and to just have a little time for contemplation or meditation or prayer, and that's why we're here. We've faced some big challenges here at the Shrine due to covid mostly due to the fact that we had to close our doors for six weeks. And that was really difficult for us to do. We have daily mass. We have masses on Sundays. We have retreat facilities. We have so many things going on. And to have to shut everything down was really heartbreaking. The people who normally come to mass or to visit the shrine it has been difficult, you know, for them. Some of them are elderly or have health issues, and so they're not able to come, have not been able to come back and go to Mass or, you know, do their normal routine. We're standing in front of the, the spring of water that has been here for ages. When Mother Cabrini first purchased this property, they told her there was no water. And she said to the sisters and the girls with her at the time, turn that rock and you will find water. And they did, and there was water. Many people believe, you know, through their faith that the water um, has special healing qualities and they believe that um, it helps them. It's just a very special part of the shrine. But we recently converted the faucet to touchless faucets due to COVID for safety reasons and because we wanted people to still have access to the water safely. It's been really hard for us to gauge the visitor pattern this summer once we reopened after COVID. I think a lot of people have stayed away because of, you know, not wanting to be in a crowd or still being very careful with social distancing. I think this is such a beautiful place 
to come to in my case every day because I have stresses just like everybody else. I'm, you know, I'm a parent, a mom and a wife and I have a fortune enough to have this job, but it's still stressful. But to be in this surrounding, I feel very blessed. I think Colorado and so many people in the United States all over the world really have been affected by COVID and it's difficult. I think it's really hard, but I think it's also a time to be thankful for our health and for the many blessings that we have. And hopefully this makes us stronger going forward. Joanne Seaman with the Mother Cabrini Shrine in Golden. Today is the first Cabrini Day in Colorado. Leif Townsend produced that story for NPR's Next Gen Radio, which trains new talent in public media. And that is Colorado Matters today on listener-supported CPR News. Indeed, everything we do is fueled by your support. We are grateful for it. We're grateful you listen. And you can follow the show at Colorado Matters on Twitter. I'm Ryan Warner, CPR News.